This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Of course, we began the day with very good news. The Pfizer vaccine is the first to get regulatory approval. As you heard in Bob's news, it comes in the United Kingdom where they will start inoculating the population as early as next week. Meanwhile, there's some bad news here at home. Our ICUs are filling up. Yesterday, the health minister revealed that at least one hospital, Scarborough General, has already cancelled some elective surgery. Other hospitals are on the verge. So where are we at exactly? What do we have to do while we wait for those vaccines and when are they coming? Now, I have to say I am a bit frustrated at all the questions around when these vaccines are coming. As uh, Bob mentioned two days ago on this show, the co-chair of the National Vaccine Task Force confirmed that Canada will be getting 6 million doses of two-dose vaccines in the first quarter of 2021. Sounds to me like that is a number that we can at least plan around, I think. What do you think? And do you have questions about where we're at now and what we should be doing? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'd like to welcome Dr. Susie Hoda, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, and Dr. Michael Warner, Medical Director of Critical Care at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto. Hello, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me as well. Um, so uh, we, we've heard from very reliable sources that we're, Canada will be getting 6 million doses in the first quarter. What does that mean about where we are going to be at for getting those vaccines into people's arms? Dr. Warner. Uh, I mean, Dr. Hota may be more of an expert on the vaccines than me, but just thinking about the logistics. So we have, you know, it depends. We, we need the cold chain to be established. That means getting the vaccine from the factory to people's arms and maintaining the appropriate temperature throughout that entire transport process. We need to make sure we have people who can actually administer vaccines. We need some type of data system to keep track of people once they've been vaccinated and to, be, to ensure they get their second dose at the appropriate time, which I believe is three weeks later. Uh, my kids and I actually use those yellow vaccination cards, and that simply won't be good enough. We also have to uh, start working on the concept or issue of vaccine hesitancy. This is a new vaccine, and some people who may even be, you know, all four vaccines could have hesitation in terms of receiving a new vaccine. So this is the time to actually start that PR campaign, that education campaign, have experts weigh in on the safety and efficacy of the vaccine so that people who are on the fence feel more comfortable uh, considering receiving the vaccine. Uh, But, you know, 6 million doses is 3 million people. There's 38 million people in Canada. It hasn't been trialed in in children, which is, you know, the under-18 population, I think, is 7.25 million Canadians. So to vaccinate 70% of the balance, that would be 86% of the adult population. So we still 
I think, have a long way to go, um, but it's excellent news that some vaccines are coming. Well, exactly, uh, Dr. Hota. To me, uh, you know, enough vaccines for 3 million people all across the country means that, uh, you know, it is going to be a long while before, uh, you know, a, a large percentage of the population gets this. Yes, this is a start. And I think uh, recognizing that number and, you know, what the population is, we, we all recognize that there, there will have to be some prioritization. And so I think the first step really is for all of the provinces and territories to agree upon that scheme, which should really be a, a national uh, prioritization scheme and and have that sort of socialized with people. So, so everyone understands what is going to happen over time. Um, and some of that will be dictated not just by what we think in terms of risk and who would benefit gr- the greatest from being vaccinated um, and the public health sort of implications of which sort of populations would, would be most beneficial to target first, but also the logistics, as Dr. Warner had mentioned. It's not the easiest vaccine. The first you know, candidates that we will get are not the easiest types of vaccines in terms of the, the cold chain requirements and storage, um, as well as once thawed, you know, having a limited period of time to roll it out. So all of that is uh, certainly part of the planning that, that's underway now. Okay, I, I want to get to that question of prioritization and, and also the vaccine hesitancy in a moment. But first, uh, let's take some stock of where we are at. I mean, we are close to the limit of ICUs, Dr. Warner. What's the situation in your hospital and have you had to cancel any elective surgeries? So my hospital is in excellent shape, actually probably much better than other area hospitals, we have uh, actually a small amount of COVID activity in our hospital. I think that's largely due to the incredible outreach uh, efforts by our infectious disease group. We have seven pop-up testing centers around our hospital. We do outreach into schools and to long-term care homes, which other hospitals have done as well, but that's really helped uh, the East Toronto situation. I'd say that the impact of COVID on ICUs is is definitely heterogeneic. So there are parts of the province where there's almost no COVID activity, where hospitals are wide open, where canceling surgeries and procedures is, you know, not even within the realm of possibility in the short term. Then there are other hospitals, you know, not too far from my hospital, Scarborough, for example, where about 40% of the ICU patients among their three ICUs have COVID-19. And uh, in York Region and Halton, if we look at all the ICU beds, about 25% of those patients have COVID-19. So it really depends on where you are and the, and that's, which is why I think we'll see local delays and cancellations first. In the first wave, we saw an across-the-board cancellation of elective surgeries and, and diagnostic imaging because we weren't sure how bad COVID was going to be. I don't think that'll happen. I don't think it should happen in the second wave because we need to maintain access to non-COVID-related care. Uh, so I think it remains to be seen um, what the impact will be uh, on patients who require ICU care for non-COVID-related illness, but I think we will see cancellations in hot zone regions uh, as time goes on, especially given the trajectory of the number of patients in ICU with COVID lately. Dr. Hoda, what's the situation at the University Health Network? Oh, we, we similarly are in a pretty good position at the moment, So, uh, and, and we don't take that for granted because we're very aware of what's been happening in the GTA in particular, but also in other uh, hotspots uh, across the province, Kitchener-Waterloo being the latest that's really kind of struggling and uh, London Health Sciences uh, many different hospitals are having having troubles, and some of that's driven by outbreaks that are happening um, that are really impacting on capacity for admitting new patients. Uh, also, just the, the biggest driver being the community transmission risk and the, the prevalence in those surrounding communities, and it's very heterogeneic across the GTA even. There are some parts um, where assessment centers 
are recording 15% of the, those tested in their assessment centers are positive, whereas in other areas, it's more like 2 or 3%. So very patchy. And as a result of that, you know, over the last few weeks, we are working more as a system within the hospital networks of the GTA to try and help out um, those that are facing problems and make sure that we're able to maintain equity for access to care for as long as possible in the GTA. Yes, uh, and and I just want to make the point that it's it's not just surgery. I mean, I've I've spent quite a bit of time talking to people whose cancer treatments of various kinds have been delayed, and of course, those patients are are immunocompromised. And yes, uh, it's not the most urgent cases, but but it is a very difficult situation when you get your radiation or your chemotherapy or whatever it is cancelled or delayed. Mm-hmm. For sure. I don't think anything is elective in the eyes of the patient who's supposed to receive the service. So that term elective procedure surgery is really a misnomer because it's all really important. And even if you're, you know, if you're waiting for a hip replacement or knee replacement, we don't want those patients on painkillers. We don't want them on opioids. We want them uh, to get their surgery so they can return, you know, mobile to the life they had before. So delaying anything really has some long-term costs and consequences for patients and for society. Yeah. And there are even small things, frankly. I mean, I had a, a call from a caller last week who was saying that that certain kinds of, uh, you know, the dental treatment that the government pays for for older patients have been cancelled. And uh, these patients end up probably in your emergency, Dr. Warner. It's 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 hard to you know I don't work in the emergency department and, and you know, the emergency department is always open for anybody who needs any type of health care and the emergency department is a safe place to go in this COVID era that we live in I feel actually safest in the hospital compared to anywhere else in society I'm not sure how Dr Hota may say the same because we we know what to do we have the equipment so patients should not hesitate to come if they need services in fact we've actually seen a reduction in in need for things like emergency visits over time, which is, you know, difficult to explain because people should be just as sick now as they were a year ago, but we're still not actually providing the same level of care for non-COVID-related um, uh, illnesses uh, as we were b- before COVID started. Yeah, I would I would add to that. I, I completely agree. And I do feel that the hospital is a safe environment and emergency departments are always open uh, for whatever care is possible. But I think what we're seeing is the effect on primary care and community uh, health care delivery. Um, and that's driven by a number of things. Some of the restrictions that are required, the, you know, sometimes lack of access to personal protective equipment to do the work the way that they need to. Um, and so, you know, I worry about things like screening, uh, taking the back seat through the rest of this, uh, you know, as we navigate through the rest of the pandemic and what those health consequences will be uh, in the upcoming years. Yeah, there, there's actually been a recent study on that, on the delay of, of screening. And uh, the the conclusion was, and it was based on, you know, older studies that, that delaying uh, delaying screenings, uh, treatments for a month, and delaying screenings can increase uh, the risk of death by about ten percent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- I want to um, move along to this uh, question of, of vaccine hesitancy because it seems to me there are two there are two kind of opposite things at play here. And on the one hand, we have people being very worried that we're at the back of the line, complaining about that and and uh, really hoping to get that vaccine as soon as possible and a, a little miffed that we probably won't be. And then on the other hand, you have people who are hesitant about getting it, either because they're they're anti-vaxxers or, or because, well, these are new vaccines. That's a little more reasonable. Dr. Warner. 
Yeah, so Libby, I mean, this is a bit of a minefield, so I'll tread carefully. I think there there are people who feel that vaccines are not for them, no matter the case, and and those are people who, um, and people like me will never reach, and that's okay. That's that's their decision. That's their right. Then there are people who are, you know, maybe I'll get a flu shot, maybe I won't. Oh, you know, this year I'm definitely get a flu shot because flu would be bad with COVID going around. You know, those people who are, who are on the fence, who are not vaccine hesitant, but maybe not vaccine aware. I think those are the people that we need to reach, especially when they hear, you know, this is a new vaccine, new technology, you know, mRNA, what does that mean? Uh, you know, it hasn't been, we, we don't know the outcomes two or three years from now, which is how long some other vaccines have been studied. And, and make sure that people understand the rigor that has, that has occurred to make sure these vaccines are safe. And, um, and, and I think that public relations exercise actually should start now uh, because there are people who will, who may not opt into vaccination because they're unclear whether it's safe. And as I mentioned before, statistically, to achieve this herd, herd immunity concept, which I'm not an expert on, it would be 86% of the adult population. I mean, that, that would be probably unprecedented in terms of uptake of any type of vaccination recently, um, other than maybe polio, et cetera, for, for children. So I think we have a lot of work we can do, and hopefully uh, – as vaccines are rolled in other countries and, and safety and efficacy is demonstrated, that will reassure Canadians that um, if assuming their health can approve, that they are safe and effective for us as well. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, the prime minister, I think it was yesterday, was saying, well, hey, if other countries get it before us, that, that'll give us a good opportunity to see what happens there. But I don't think even a delay of months, which a lot of people wouldn't be thrilled about is going to be enough to see what uh, side effects or anything there are like that. Uh, Dr. Hoda, which of these two polls do you see as a, a worse problem? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that um, it, the more time we have to understand any of the vaccine candidates that are coming out, the, the better off we're going to be. And that's just the reality for any new therapeutic or vaccine that comes out onto the market. Um, but, you know, I, I would agree with, with what Dr. Warner says. Like, we, we need to start talking about this vaccine and sharing all the information we have. And, and that starts with getting the results of the vaccine trials that, um, you know, still haven't really been released. It's still uh, information based upon press release that we're working with here in the public domain, at least. So, well, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me give the numbers out again, because I'm sure that people out there have questions and, and people do be patient. I'll try to take your calls. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. We have some very preliminary information about the rollout of the vaccine. We're going to get... 6 million doses in the first quarter of the year. That's enough for 3 million people across the country. Uh, and, um, you know, frankly, uh, that's not that many here in our neighborhood. Uh, so do you have questions about the vaccine? Are you ready to take it? Are you hesitant because you don't like vaccines or are you hesitant because this is a brand new vaccine which you know frankly is a, a little more of a, a reasonable objection again the numbers to call 416-360-0740 toll free 1-866-744-740 and dr warner there was an angus reed poll a little while back that showed that it said 67 percent of canadians would take the vaccine um you know i think i think that's actually higher than most uh, other vaccine take up i guess we'll, we'll see uh you know the hardest part about about 
vaccination is actually creating the vaccine. And that's, you know, it took them 10 months to come up with something that still, as Dr. Hoda says, we need to see the data, but um, it looks like we have some excellent candidates forthcoming. So that is in and of itself incredible. We know that vaccine hesitancy varies with GDP uh, and we live in a high GDP country. And again, I think the, the flu shot actually could have provided the government with an excellent opportunity to figure out the messaging and to figure out the rollout of a vaccine that people generally accept is probably okay. Some people will never get the flu shot, and that's their right. But, you know, that's where you do the focus groups. That's where you do the marketing research. Figure out you know, what worked for the flu shot, what didn't work, and how can we pivot with this COVID vaccine to uh, increase the uptake, uh, assuming it's available. So maybe the government plans on doing that, but I still think there's an opportunity to work out the kinks of our messaging. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think also part of the problem is that there there are a lot of cooks involved with this. Uh, you know, uh, with the flu vaccine, there's the province that orders it. There's local public health units that deliver a lot of it. Local public health units uh, work on fax machines. I'm sure we have listeners who don't even know what those are. Uh, so um, there are a lot of different messages. I mean, there's there's probably some good news in with the flu because the the government ordered a lot of extra doses and promptly ran out. Yeah, I mean, I I, I personally think the flu vaccination um, is a campaign and and what happens year to year with flu vaccination is actually quite different in my mind from what we're embarking on with this pandemic and and the vaccine for COVID-19. With the flu vaccine, we've had uh, that available for quite a long time. It's of moderate efficacy. Um, it is something that is covered universally and free, offered for free to everybody. But year to year, it's, you know, at best 30% of the population in Ontario that, that gets uh, vaccinated. Um, but here we are in a pandemic and people recognize this is an opportunity to get life potentially back to normal as, uh, you know, over time. And we've got a highly efficacious uh, couple of candidates that have come forward so far. Um, the, the main hesitancy is, of course, around is a safe but as we get more of that information out and it starts to roll out, I think that, I, you know, I'm personally optimistic that we're going to see high uptake and uh, and I'm, I hope that ends up being the case. Okay, I'm, I'm going to take a few calls now. Terry in Utopia. Hello, Terry. Hi, how are you today? Fine, how are you? Oh, not too bad for uh, Wednesday. Go ahead. It's nice and sunny outside. Go ahead. I'm curious as to... Uh, if uh, either doctor has heard of any side effects from this uh, from this vaccine, who's taking that? I, I can start with that. Um, so from the limited information that's been released, what we have heard is that it's very well tolerated. These two, the top two candidates that are kind of moving forward at the quickest pace, uh, are well tolerated. They do tend to have typical side effects that you get from vaccines, and that includes like redness, soreness, swelling, a little bit of pain at the site of injection, um, sometimes fever and feeling tired, uh, headaches, muscle aches, that kind of thing. And that really, to me, is a good sign. It means that your immune system is uh, is actually working. It's been stimulated by what you've you've injected into your your body. And so, you know, I see that as a reassuring side effect um, in terms of serious as we call them, adverse events. They have not been reported, at least in, to the media at this point. Um, but again, this is where I'm very curious to see what the actual full result trials will be, uh, uh, results will be. Yeah, that, Terry, part of the issue is that we haven't seen actual results. We've seen press releases. Dr. Warner, do you want to add to that? Uh, Dr. Hota is more of an expert in this than I am, so I'll, I will 
I will defer to her excellent answer. Okay, uh, let's go to Pat in St. Catharines. Hi, Pat. Oh, hi, hi, baby. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, good. Um, what I want to ask the doctors is, um, I'm 80 years old, and when I was 74, I was diagnosed with lymphoma. It's a low grade, but I wonder if my I know my immune system is compromised. Would I be able to get the vaccine? I'm a deep believer in all kinds of vaccines. Dr. Hoda? Sure, yeah. I mean, I would say um, absolutely. She would actually be a top candidate for the vaccine, given your age um, and the fact that you have a health condition that uh, suppresses the immune system. You're at higher risk for, you know, COVID-19, um, more serious illness if you got the infection. So the the work that's gone around prioritization from um, the National um, Advisory Committee on Immunizations in Canada does place those who are older and those that have underlying health conditions that put them at risk for more severe illness at the top of the list. So, yes, you would be eligible for it. And Oh, that's wonderful because yeah. I'll, I'll be for first chance I can get it. I will be there. That's good to hear. Good for you. Thank you, Pat. Thank you very much. Yeah, and I, I'd like to bring up the issue of the prioritization. Uh, and I've been talking to some bioethicists. So there are a lot of people advising a lot of different levels of government. And apparently the prime minister and the premiers have agreed there should be some kind of national standard. But at the moment, you know, nobody is clear who decides. And there are some from what I've seen, small variations in, in what, you know, public health people think should be the priority. Yesterday, Teresa Tam said it should just be age simply. Um, I have seen Eileen Davila has said it should be people in high priority neighborhoods. There's long-term care. Uh, how, Michael Warner, how important is it that people get clarity on who is in line? Uh, I think it's really important. I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges, I, and I don't know the answer. Uh, first of all, you know, health care generally is in the provincial domain, and will this be a national vaccine strategy or you know, 10 provincial and three territorial vaccine strategies? And should the vaccine be allocated on a per capita basis, or should it vary with how much COVID activity there is in each province? And then once you're within a province, you know, do you, do, do you deploy it to specific neighborhoods in the GTA that have the most COVID, or to long-term care homes, or to people with a certain number of comorbidities, which puts them at increased risk for ending up in the ICU? Do we know which comorbidities each person has, like our previous caller? We probably don't, because there's no general health database on each individual's comorbidities. So this is work that needs to be done now, and definitely needs to be clear. We don't want people also kind of traveling to where they can get the vaccine the easiest. Uh, there has to be some control over how it's allocated. And definitely a way to keep track of who gets the vaccine when, because most shots, and, and Dr. Hoda can correct me if I'm wrong, except for the Johnson & Johnson one, um, are two shots. So there's a certain time period in between shot one and shot two, shot two that has to be respected as well. Yeah, do- Dr. Hoda, I mean, uh, to me, uh, again, this might be sort of too many cooks involved. You know, what do you think? 
Well, definitely clarity of where the message is coming from and uh, and trying to condition people to understand what to expect are very important for the part of the rollout. I think, you know, there are existing bodies. I referred to the National Advisory Committee for Immunization, NACI. This is a group that's been in existence for a long time at the federal level and uh, has put out recommendations for our immunization strategy within Canada for multiple different problems, infectious diseases. And it makes a lot of sense for that group to be uh, involved in this. And certainly they have been to date. And so some of that early work in terms of what do the experts believe based on the evidence and expert opinion should be the strategy has been done and will continue to be done and evaluated. However, there's another component that has to be taken into consideration, and that's the logistics. And we can't underestimate the importance of that. How many places will actually have minus 80 or minus 70 freezers to store the vaccine that is likely to come out first and the capacity to do the thawing, diluting, and administration at a mass level. So these are important things to consider, too. I was given to understand that they've started to be deployed. Is that right? Um, Have you and your hospitals heard anything about getting those fridges? Uh, I'm unaware of any deployment of of the logistics side of things uh, from the government at this point in time. So I don't know if uh, I, I have nothing further to comment on that, I guess. Okay, I'm not aware either. I think General Hillier in his press conference said that they'll be ready for December 31st, uh, but I'm not sure what that exactly means in terms of being ready. Uh, and, and I don't think they were clear in Ontario in terms of uh, when they're getting um, the first vaccines. And I don't think they even knew at that time which vaccines they were likely to get or how many. So I think it's all to be determined. Yeah, it uh, seems quite up in the air. Let's take a call from Anne and Arthur. Hello, Anne. Yes, hello. Uh, I have called because I maybe I've missed it, but um, people with autoimmune diseases like myself, I have two different ones, have been told um, I, I, even when I'm very, very ill, I have to debate whether I'm ill enough to go to the hospital because I would be exposed to whatever is in there and um, that I cannot take the shot because it would kill me. So uh, is that true? Is really? Who told you that? Um, medical people. Um, I might be able to help with with that a a little bit. Um, I'm not sure exactly what's happened with previous vaccines that you may have been coming forward uh, to receive, but it really depends on the type of vaccine. And when people's immune systems are compromised, um, especially heavily compromised, certain types Mm -hmm. of vaccines are not appropriate to give at that time. And those tend to be the ones that are based upon a live sort of virus uh, platform. Um, So that could be... um, uh, for example, um, well, I I have lupus and fibromyalgia. Mm, okay, so I, it depends on if you're on some immune suppressive medications. That 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 would be so things like the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. If if that needed to be administered again for some reason, if you didn't have it previously, they weren't sure if you're immune. That's a live vaccine, and so. That's usually not given when people have a a very compromised immune system. The vaccines we're talking about here are not built that way. And so as far as I I know, there is no reason why someone with a suppressed immune system would not be able to get it. In fact, we'd want people with suppressed immune systems to get it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you for that, Anne. The the only thing I would add is that, I mean, just that one example speaks to the fact that we need to make sure that everybody's on the same page, including... Healthcare practitioners for whom this vac- these vaccines are new as well. 
to make sure that we're all providing our patients with the same information about how safe and efficacious they are so that patients aren't left in a situation where they're confused. Uh, I just, uh, we're starting to run out of time. I just want to ask about uh, finding that I just saw, and uh, the conclusion was that a lot of the recent spread is from very small at-home gatherings, not the big parties we've been hearing about, but less than 10 people. Uh, You know, what do you want to tell people about that? And I mean, I'm assuming there's a difference between 10 people in your house and one person in your house wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. I mean, from my perspective, I say it all speaks to the same things we've been saying since the beginning, close proximity, being in confined spaces, having lots uh, and frequent contact with other people. These are the biggest risk factors for on- onward transmission of COVID-19. Um, so if you're talking about a gathering versus your household or, or whatever the setting might be, the more the people that you're in contact with, the higher the risk can be for transmission if one of those individuals happens to come down with the infection. I think the government guidelines are actually quite clear now in the lockdown regions. You know, if the person doesn't live in your house, they shouldn't be in your house. Um, there's some specific carve-outs for people who don't have anyone else during the holidays if they live alone. But just because you know someone and you trust them and they have the same you know, kind of level of fastidious, fastidiousness with COVID as you do, doesn't mean they can't pass it to you if they're in your house and, and not following public health precautions. So uh, you can't Sometimes I think people have a tendency to create rules in their mind about things being safe because they feel they should be safe. But COVID doesn't know the difference and doesn't know that you know and trust someone else. So by following the public health guidelines, if they don't live in your house, they shouldn't be in your house. That will help mitigate the risk of spread through these small gatherings. Okay. Um, We're basically out of time. So I'm going to give each of you, uh, what would you like to leave us with, Dr. Hota? I think we're at a really critical time right now in the GTA and in Ontario, frankly, in Canada, and people really need to buckle down, which is a difficult message to deliver given that we're heading into the holiday season. Um, but, we, you know, what we're just talking about right now, reducing contacts as much as possible is so critical right now so we can buy ourselves some time before vaccine vaccines become available. Dr. Warner? Well, you know, I'm all about clear, consistent, transparent communication from the government. I think that would help people and most of us have COVID fatigue, really kind of get through this difficult winter. So we need to make sure that the science and the public health measures decisions are made clear to people and that if politicians are going to have the microphone, they speak uh, directly based on what the scientists are telling uh, us as Ontarians that we should be doing to keep ourselves safe. I think that's really important. Okay. Uh, that's all the time we have. Uh, we will, of course, be talking about this uh, very often. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael Warner and Dr. Susie Hota. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.